Thank you. Hello, my name is Peter Kravitz, and I'd like to welcome you to, on behalf of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, to this afternoon's session with James Kelman. It's a very exciting day because um, there is a new book uh, to this country published. Uh, Polygon have reissued the three uh, first books published here by Polygon. And in addition, uh, today we have uh, the first time in this country of James Kelman's first book, An Old Pub Near the Angel and Other Stories, which was originally published by the Puckerbush Press in Maine in 1973. A really exciting thing for me, I've only just seen it, um, uh, is the fact that Jim's uh, written a 40, 50 page autobiographical essay uh, to go at the end of that book. So that's a really exciting piece of work, which I'm going to really look forward to reading, as I'm sure you will. What I'd like to uh, do as we uh, move into initially a reading, uh, and then we're going to talk for a while and then open up uh, for the rest, most of the time, for questions from you all. I'd, I'd like to ask you, if you haven't already, to uh, switch off your mobile phones and uh, to uh, give you the information that after we uh, finish here, uh, there's going to be a book signing in the signing tent, which is left and left again as you uh, leave the auditorium. So I'd like you to put your hands together and welcome James Kelman. Thank you for me a glass of water. Thanks. What I'm going to do is uh, I'll begin by reading uh, probably for about 10 minutes. And after the, the 10 minutes, then there'll be a, a question session with Peter. And there'll be time also for uh, answers, etc. Etc. So, yeah, as Peter said, this is it's quite exciting for myself, really, uh, and it's, it's it's very appropriate that Peter should be uh, interviewing me here, since it was through Peter's auspices back in 1983 that I first went to Polygon Books. Maybe 83, Peter. So, so from that, it's really good, and also as he said, an old pub near the Angel, which was published in 1973, really, uh, quite early. And the stories that I wrote from the ages of about 22 uh, through to 25, early 26. And it's really nice to have it out. And I wrote uh, a very long autobiographical kind of afterward to give information on the subject. But for the reading just now, rather than read a story from that, they're, they're fairly long. I'm going to read uh, two or three stories uh, from this collection. The first Polygon edition from 1983. Uh, which was, yeah, 1983 it was. So I'm going to, and it was, it's been good being able to, I reproofed the four books again, busking Dr. Hines and a chance. So it was really nice being able to take care of <laughs> errors, for Christ's sake. <laughs> it's been horrible for like 25 years. You thought, fuck's sake. <laughs> dear, oh dear. You know, I knew the, the typesetter who was a friend, Adam, it would have been great to go to the typesetter. Adam, what the hell is this, man? <laughs> However, <laughs> uh, and just to kind of get my own nerves, I'll begin by reading this, uh, uh, a very short one, which is a story from the mid-70s called Acid. Uh, Acid. 
In this factory in the north of England, acid was essential. It was contained in large vats. Gangways were laid above them. Before these gangways were made completely safe, a young man fell into a vat feet first. His screams of agony were heard all over the department. Except for one old fellow, the large body of men was so horrified that for a time not one of them could move. In an instant, this old fellow, who was also the young man's father, had clambered up and along the gangway carrying a big pole. Sorry, Shui, he said, and then ducked the young man below the surface. Obviously, the old fellow had had to do this because only the head and shoulders, in fact, that which had been seen above the acid was all that remained of the young man. And a slightly longer story I'll read too. This one's called, uh, this story is called We Horrors. <laughs> we Horrors, that, that pun is intended. I'm smiling because my, my daughters are in the audience here with two of my grandkids, you know. We horrors obviously can occasionally refer to children. <laughs> right, we horrors. The back court was thick with rubbish as usual. What a mess. I never liked thinking about the state it used to get into. As soon as a family flitted out to the new home, all the wains were in and dragging off the abandoned furnishings and fittings, most of which they dumped. Plus, with the demolition work going on, you were getting piles of mortar and old brickwork everywhere. A lot of folk thought the worst kind of rubbish was the soft goods, the mattresses and dirty clothing left behind by the ragmen. Fleas were the problem. It seemed like every night of the week we were having to root them out once the wains came in. Both breeds we were catching, the big yins and the wee yins, the dark and the rusty brown. The pest control went round from door to door, useless, the only answer was keeping the wains inside, but ours were too old for that. Having visitors in the house was an ordeal, trying to listen to what they were saying while watching for the first signs of scratching. <laughs> then last thing at night, before getting into bed, me and the wife had to make a point of checking through our own stuff. Apart from that, there was little to be done about it. We did warn the wains, but it was useless. Turn your back and they were off downstairs to play at wee houses dressing up in the clothes and bouncing on the mattresses till all you were left hoping was they would knock the stuffing out the fleas. <laughs> Some chance. You have to drown the cunts or burn them. A few people get the knack of crushing them between thumbnail and forefinger, but I could never master that. Anyway, fleas have got nothing to do with this. I was down in the back court to shout my pair up for their tea. The woman up the next close had told me they were all involved in some new den they had built. And if I saw hers while I was at it, I was to send them up right away. The wains were always making dens. It could be funny to see. You looked out the window and saw what you thought was a pile of rubble and maybe a sheet of tarpaulin stuck in the top. Take another look and you might see a wee head poking out. Then another and another till finally maybe ten of them were standing there thinking the coast was clear. But on this occasion I couldn't see a thing. I checked out most of the possibilities. Nothing. No signs of them anywhere. And it was quiet as well. Normally you would have at least heard a couple of squeaks. I tramped about for a time, retracing my steps and so on. I was not too worried. It would have been difficult if only my pair was missing. 
for there was no sight nor sound of any description, and I was having to start considering the dunnies. This is where I get annoyed. I've always hated dunnies. Pitch black and that smell of charred rubbish, the broken glass, these things your shoes nudge against. Terrible. Then if you're in one and pause a moment, there's this silence forcing you to listen. Really bad. I had to go down, but... In the second one I tried, I found some of the older mob sitting in a kind of circle round two candles. They heard me come, and I knew they had shifted something out of sight. But they recognised me okay. And one of the lassies told me she had seen, me a, couple, seen a couple of wains sneaking across to Gregor's. I was really angry at this. I had told them umpteen times never to go there. By rights, the place should have got knocked down months ago, but progress was being blocked for some reason I don't know. And now the squatters and a couple of the girls were in through the barricading. If you looked over late at night, you could see the candle glow at the windows, and during the day, you were getting the cars crawling along near the pavement. It was hopeless. I went across. Once upon a time, a grocer had a shop in the close, and this had something to do with how it got called Grieger's. Judging from the smell of food, he was still in business. At first, I thought it was coming from up the close, but the nearer I got, I could tell it was coming from the dunny. Down I went. Being a corner block, there were a good few twists and turns from the entrance lobby, and I was having to go carefully. A kind of sizzling, that was the sounds, making you think of a piece of fucking silverside in the oven. These crackling noises when the juice spurts out, Jesus Christ. I shouted the names of my pair. The sound of feet scuffling. I turned a corner and got a hell of a shock. A woman standing in a doorway. Her face wasn't easy to see because of the light from behind her. Then a man appeared. He began nodding away with a daft smile on his face. I recognised them. Whinies. They had been dossing about the area for the past while. Even the face she had told a story. White with red blotches. Eyes always seeming to water. She walked in this queer kind of stiff shuffle. Her shoes flapping. When she stepped back from the doorway, she drew the cuff of her coat sleeve across her mouth. The man was still giving his daft smiles. I followed. Inside the room, all the wains were gathered round the middle of the floor. Sheets of newspaper had been spread about. I spotted my pair immediately, scared out their wits at seeing me. I just looked to them. Over at the fireplace, a big fire was going. Not actually in the fireplace, set about a yard in front. The spit was fashioned above it, and a wee boy stood there. He must have been rotating the fucking thing. Three lumps of meat sizzled away, and just to the side were a few cooked bits lined in a row. I hadn't noticed the woman across, but then she was there, and making a show of turning contraption, just so I would know she wasn't giving a fuck about me being there, and him still smiling, then beginning to make movements, as if he wanted to demonstrate how it all worked. He was pointing out a row of raw lumps in the mantelpiece, and then reaching for a knife with a thin blade. I shook my head, Jesus Christ, right enough. I grabbed for my pair, yelling at the rest of the wings to get up that effing stair at once. That's the end of that one. <laughs> How long have you been there? Uh, about five.
five, eight minutes, five, six. Or you can stop there, whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe that's better to stop there. <coughs> Jim, you, you mentioned uh, that you've reproofed the three, uh, the four books, yeah. and obviously written the afterward. What's it like going back to, to books you've written, you know, in a chunk yeah. like that? What was that like? Well, it was very difficult with the, an old pub near the Angel. Again, uh, because these stories had been written when, when I was young, and I, I, I felt uh, very wary about uh, doing the proofing. I didn't want to get into rewriting them at all. It's that thing to do with being a young artist that you, you have, uh, in a sense, you're, you're equipped to, to do the thing that you should be doing, and yet you know enough to do that. And if you know any, any more, in a sense, any more technical ways of performing a particular task, the actual story itself will change. And I thought that was what would happen if I, if I interfered too much, then the stories themselves would change. So it, it became quite tricky, really, to try and do a very light skim, proofing skim, without having to, without doing anything more. But I quite enjoyed it, in a, in a way. And I, I kind of <laughs> uh, appreciated what I was trying to do uh, 35 years ago. I, I just realised that some of them were quite tricky. A couple of stories that I never ever reprinted, really, uh, they didn't fail. The, the, work, the stories worked fine, but I see that they were very ambitious for the time. You know, and I was, and I, in a way, I was glad that I did finish them at all, because often, as a as a young artist, you don't. If you stop working something and you go back to it years later, you realise that the reason why you didn't do it was because it was too ambitious, really, for what you had the capacity uh, for doing at that particular time, and you can finish it later. It's almost like it requires greater technique, technique, you know. But with these, uh, some of these stories. Uh, it was good. It was good to finish them, <laughs> and I, I kind of appreciated that. A story like "Nice to Be Nice," which ends the collection, which uh, is written in a transcription of a, a kind of phonetic transcription of a Glasgow speaking voice, but that was a was a very tricky one to do, and uh, it took umpteen drafts. I, mean, I don't know how how many drafts of that story I went through, different ways of spelling things and. I refer to it in the afterward. Uh, it, was a, it was a really tricky one. <laughs> and in fact, when I, I reprinted it in a, another collection and changed it for the, the second collection, but I, le I left the first one in as it, as it was done. Hmm. There's a 10-year gap between uh, the first and second books, 1973-1983. What was that like? Obviously, you were writing most of the time. Well, I published, a, I published uh, six stories with uh, Tom Leonard and Sandy Hamilton in a collection called uh, Three Glasgow Writers. That came out in 1976, I think. And I also published, well, Where Acid, that story Acid comes from, that was a, a pamphlet called Short Tales from the Night Shift that uh, I was involved with uh, Angus Nicholson, Angus McNichol, who's here. I don't know whether he's here just now, but he was here. He had to go away. His car's parked somewhere. Is Angus here? <laughs> yeah, okay, Angus was myself and Angus and Alistair Gray and Tom Leonard, Liz Lockett, who's also reading somewhere just now, Liz, unfortunately, were, were clashing. 
Uh, but so Liz was there and uh, Alistair Gray, Tom Buckins, some of you remember Tom Buckins, but uh, Alan Spence, Tom McGrath, and we all decided at that time there, there weren't the kind of publications that would, uh, that would deal with a lot of our work, so we thought we would uh, form a cooperative. And I had served a couple of years as an apprentice compositor, so I thought, I'll set the fucking buggers up, you know. <laughs> Give us my old uh, stick and I'll go and set them, but in fact, it proved beyond us. And, but it was good that we did, we did bring out about 11, I think we brought out 11 uh, books, in fact, which for the period was really good. Uh, Angus is, Imaginary Wounds, Angus, was it? I can't remember uh, the title. And Tom's, uh, if only Bunty was here, that great radio play did. It was a really good thing. So that was like 1978. In fact, we all came and did a, a reading at the Edinburgh uh, before the book fair days. Remember, I think uh, Ricky DeMarco had a, a gallery up in uh, Canongate or something. And we were on there, but he didn't tell us. Typical Ricky DeMarco. <laughs> Quarter past midnight we started, you know. <laughs> we all came from Glasgow, you know. And unfortunately, that, the, there was that really nice pub down the road, Macintosh's Bar. So, you know. <laughs> So the audience, two, two, uh, two old guys and a dog turned up to hear it. <laughs> Very typical Edinburgh Fest, uh, fringe, you know. <laughs> so the 70s in that sense, were, although we, uh, there were no books, it was quite a hectic period. And there was a, a, there was a nice sense of camaraderie amongst many writers uh, around at that period. Um, without overdoing that, but there was, you know, which I think... Some of the people around in Polygon were familiar with it. You would have heard about that, some of that aspect. We were doing uh, various readings and stuff as well. At that time in Glasgow, Callum, uh, Callum McKenzie and Johnny Taylor and others were involved in running the Glasgow Print Studio uh, in Ingram Street. So they allowed us a space there. And Callum, in fact, I uh, think John Byrne Slab Boys was first, or the, the writer's uh, cramp uh, it, it appeared there. So that, there were venues, people were beginning to offer venues uh, for kind of things that we were doing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, one last question before I open it up. I'm curious how uh, rereading these four books has affected work in progress. Well, I have a new novel coming out next year, and I was kind of glad in a way to do this afterward to an old pub near the Angel because it will dispel some. Uh, potential myths about my own background. Yes, the new, this new novel of mine is quite, it's quite a traditional type of novel. It's based in the life of a boy growing up in Glasgow in the 50s and very early 60s. So people will, and also because I'm quite, although I don't mention certain parts of Glasgow uh, specifically, it's quite easy to work out where they are. I'm, I'm very kind of, uh, the, the uh, topography is very kind of clear, so people will know, in fact, uh, where it is. So because of that, I wanted to try and get clear that this is, I mean, my brother, one of my brothers, I've got four brothers, one of my brothers is in the audience just now, and, uh, and well, he had to read that to clear it with him before. <laughs> uh, but I wanted it dispelled because I knew, in the new novel, the, the boy, the, the heart of the novel, in a sense, uh, he has only one brother and he has no sisters, so it's a small family. And mine, of course, as I say, there was four, I had four brothers, there was five of us. So I was, in a way, quite glad to do this autobiographical afterward to an open near the angel to dispel that kind of myth 
Uh, and the, the other reason, again, that I was glad to do again, simply because having left school at 15, again, it dispels the, this kind of myth that you, know, you've ordered, you have to go to university in order to be a writer, uh, or you have to have higher education or further education in order to be a kind of a good, in quotes, or a serious reader. And that wasn't my own experience at all. My own experience was different from that. Uh, and but all through my kind of uh, formative years, the teens and early 20s, there were, I mean, discussing books was straightforward. I would read and discuss books with everybody in all the different jobs I worked in, you know, whether it was in the buses or, or wherever, you know. So that was uh, my community. It was a reading and a literate, literary community in that sense. But it was an ordinary working class uh, community. So that was that again for me was a is a, a powerful reason why I was pleased to, to have the chance of doing this uh, quite autobiographical thing. Okay. All right, we've got about thirty five minutes for questions discussion. I think uh, in order for me to see people's hands um, the lights are going on, that's great. And uh, there'll probably be a couple of microphones around the room. One, two. So um, here goes. Now's your chance. You want to go <coughs> to that man in the hat? Well, if you just if you just hang on for the mic, because then everyone can hear the question. I heard that question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking, do you vote at elections? Yeah, I'm kind of deaf to a lot of questions, but that one I heard. <laughs> no, I mean I think uh, no, I don't vote at all. I, I don't. I, I voted once when I was uh, quite young. But I don't vote at all. I, I, so I wouldn't go on from here to say that I'm apolitical. I wouldn't describe myself as apolitical, but I certainly I wouldn't vote for this within this system. So there you are. <laughs> clear question, clear answer. Yeah, but I mean, you, would you want to come back with a rejoinder? Not a rejoinder, but I mean, I'll be happy to. You know, reading your novels, I know where you stand, roughly, but I was just wondering how you take that forward into yeah. what sort of action or voting or whatever. And, you know, possibly even saying, are you a member of a political party? Or have you yeah. ever been, you know? No, I haven't, I haven't been at all a, a, a member of any party. I've been involved in various things over years. I've been involved in uh, political campaigning and, and various... Uh, things around the uh, kind of political and political cultural things. I mean, to that extent, being involved in a writer's cooperative is quite a political thing to do at that period it was. And in the, in the mid early to mid-80s, again, uh, well, with Peter and others probably around in, in the audience, some of you, being involved in the free university was, a, a, again, for that period, very, uh, a very political thing to be involved in. There was a lot of uh, kind of radical... Uh, activities around, I suppose, which culminated in uh, a big event in January 1990 in Glasgow, the uh, self-determination event, uh, where we invited the two keynote speakers being George Davy, the great Scottish uh, tradition bearer in philosophy and uh, Scottish Enlightenment and various ideas, and also Noam Chomsky. These were the, the keynote speakers. Now, that, that was, a, a very, again, a a very political event, but no, I've never been involved in any political party. 
I mean, I am, I would regard myself as being a socialist and moved towards libertarian socialism. I'm, I'm a member of the older kind of uh, socialist, uh, anti-parliamentarian, completely anti-parliamentarian. So I have very grave differences with Lenin and what he told Willie Gallagher. <laughs> I'm, I'm in favour. So if we're, we're the old tradition, the old anti-parliamentarian, uh, which was, that was the, the establishment left position at that time. Uh, majority would be Republican. So I'm also of, uh, of the, the, the group and the, James Conley is one of the greatest Scottish uh, socialists who ever lived. Yeah, uh, probably uh, the majority of people here won't even know he was Scottish. So for me, that is the tradition. And no, I would not vote Scottish Nationalist Party. I would never take in front of my grandkids here. I would never swear allegiance to any fucking other family. <laughs> Royal family or fucking bunch of aristocrats, never. But I'm not political. That's why I would not vote SNP. I completely disagree with the Oath of Allegiance. There's no possibility of being involved in that. Looks like you saw someone before me, yeah. Hello, James. I'm, I'm the guy from Queen's Ferry who got you to sign our letter about the hotel development in the Scotsman. Right. Uh, thanks for that. Um, you said that you wouldn't vote in the present system. Uh, what kind of system would you consider voting in? It would be interesting to see what... Uh, it would be interesting to... I mean, it might sound hypocritical, but it would be interesting to see what happens over this next uh, few months, the next year, or the way that the SNP take things. It would be great to see things move. Uh, I don't see why any country should, should not uh, uh, determine their own existence in the same way as any human being shouldn't. You know, unless if anyone's capable, of course they shouldn't. And I feel the same about the country. It'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, uh, there's a great deal that'd be interesting to see happening. I think that you know that there are uh, changes afoot. I think there are. Uh, there, there has been a movement for a, a long number of years, and it's maybe this is a, again a, a different kind of way forward. Some of us uh, around. Uh, I'm over sixty now, but we'll remember even. I was thinking coming through in a train, I had a, a play in the radio in 1978. And in fact, it was in the first week of Radio Scotland. And at that point, uh, it was the first week Radio Scotland's existence, and they had a play on a mine about uh, the three Scottish martyrs, the Scottish insurrection, uh, Hardy, Baird and Wilson, a lot of you will know about that, 1819, but most people will never have heard of it. But that kind of uh, event, it was really a good thing to do, but other people who know about that era will be aware. The BBC were, were taking pains to fill important and senior positions in the BBC in Scotland with English, with people from England, and that was going on at the time, just in case uh, 1979 proved to be a difficult uh, thing and it uh, became a Scottish Parliament. That was the situation then. It didn't happen, but then, you know, people might say there was, I think that was the last time I voted. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't. I can't remember voting now. Okay. Uh, if we keep on moving across, man with glasses in the middle. Jim, I was interested in your comment about not having a university education and subsequently going on to do writing. Nowadays, many universities have got uh, degrees in uh, creative writing and such like. Do you feel that this 
puts people that haven't had that kind of education at a disadvantage due to the fact that people that take degrees and so on are getting closer to the, the business of writing and being creative and such like. What's, what's your opinion of that general scene? I went to university when I was 29, you know, so as a mature student, uh, which would be about 75, 76, I went to that period, you know, uh, and did a period then. But in a way, the, I think in a sense, it, people will have to, those who want to write will, will, will do it, but it, it will take them back to being aware of how tough it is really, and that it is, it is an art forum, and uh, so, they, they will continue to do it. I mean, you, the, the way it's taught at university, I do have strong, strong views on it because I've taught creative writing and uh, I've taught it on a couple of occasions in the States and I taught it, well, I didn't teach it here, but I was in, in a position that you were supposed to teach it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was Glasgow University. Uh, myself and Tom Leonard and Alice agree, but it proved to be a kind of shocking kind of thing altogether, so... Uh, uh, Alice and I resigned and Tom eventually moved and has been moved elsewhere within it. Uh, they're very happy with academics doing that job in there, you know. <laughs> uh, now, but the thing about it is that it's becoming a kind of self-perpetuating thing in the sense that other, maybe other, uh, I mean there's a wider debate than that that has to do with maybe Scottish education, the Scottish education system that as I see actually been quite linked to, to that question, although it doesn't seem to be. Uh, but it's the way in which a subject has been hijacked. In creative writing, or rather, the creation of literature has been hijacked. They're too, they're too embarrassed to describe as that, so they call it creative writing. You know, creative writing, you know, what the hell is... <laughs> it's silly, you know, but, but in fact, using that term or that phrase allows them to kind of make no, no distinction between genre fiction and uh, Dostoevsky or something like that. So somehow they're both doing the same thing. And Well, he just writes literary novels, but I do crime novels, you know. That kind of stuff, as though somehow they're linked in, you know. Uh, and as though somehow, I mean, everybody who uses language uses language creatively. Part of the problem with it is a very kind of low, uh, a low awareness of how language operates. So I'd, I'd, I don't really have uh, much time for it, but it's happened in so many other areas that the university hijacks uh, hijacks an area of field and then it becomes self-perpetuating. Their own students gradually get degrees in order to teach the subject. They may have published one novel or a, a play or something or a poem somewhere and they have a degree in creative writing so then they can get a job teaching creative writing and that's great. You know. But one of the things about it is, of course, they earn money and the rest of us are back to being skint. But I think it's, I think it's quite good for, for young artists to realise that that is the nature of it. And it's not like uh, this sort of a, well, you, you know, to kind of mistake it for a career or something. That this is what art is about. And it's about having to kind of uh, reevaluate things and uh, fight against a value system. And this is what musicians and painters and artists, uh, writers and dramatists and various artists should be doing, they should be challenging. You know, they're not in there just to get a, it'd be great, it's great to get a wage for what you're doing, but not where that becomes like the be all and end all, as it is within the university creative writing system, it's become that. You know, uh, I won't go into it too much. Too. 
Okay. Hi, uh, I was really pleased to hear you talk about Chomsky because it was about Chomsky I've been thinking as I thought about coming here today. And um, there seem to be two things about the content of Chomsky's political thought and also Chomsky on language. And I uh, felt that what you were saying today there about uh, people not thinking enough about the nature of language itself and that be being the prime political act made to me, uh, you have to be careful in the land of the three, one of the most tremendously political books I've ever read because of the understanding of the word security, for instance, <laughs> that you don't, you don't move, you know, once, once, once you think about the nature of security, once you think about 9-11 and you don't wait until Chomsky's book about 9-11 comes out, you will start thinking about how that word security and care is used in context and you start evolving narrative and you start evolving ways of speaking and it's a tremendous book and, well, and it's the most yeah. political book I've ever read, the most tremendous, thank you. Right, well thanks. Uh, I mean, talking about, well really in a sense it's I mean, I was thinking about Chomsky and I was talking about the idea of creative writing in a sense, you know, and it's basic. It's basic philosophy of language or linguistics that everybody, you, I mean, this is part of the reason why, again, people move into a priori arguments in that sense, you know, uh, simply because people are using language in such an original and unique way every day of their life. You know, this is, this is, this is human beings as users of language. This, I mean, in part of Chomsky's studies have, have done it, and this is, this is that old kind of a th old Socratic, uh, I mean, the slave boy who, who can produce a theorem uh, from a very basic uh, knowledge of, uh, uh, of mathematics and comes out with something that is extremely sophisticated, you know, that gives rise to the... But it's that kind of awareness of that, uh, that degree of sophistication uh, that a lot, I mean, writers eventually, because this is what we do as, as writers, as artists, we study a language, that is what we do. Those of us who do it seriously and long enough, that's, how, that's, that's part of our day-to-day -day work. So even intuitively, we can tell that something like creative writing is just, it doesn't really connect with what we do, unless we want to and are allowed to make it connect. But once that happens, we have to start taking it very seriously indeed as they would if it was uh, to do with the study of any art, if it was a school of art, a school of drama, a school of music. But it doesn't make the mistake of thinking, you know, that equating one, uh, one expression within that kind of medium is the, same is the same as another. It doesn't make the mistake of thinking that a pantomime equates with a, a great play. And it's not to cast doubts on one as opposed to the other. It's to say that they're very different things. And there's no reason why we should be scared of saying, saying that, you know. Now, in that area, something like creative writing can operate when it operates very seriously. But you've got to be prepared to deal with it at a higher level. You have to be prepared to... You can't come out and say absurd things and, uh, you know, from uh, the podium as a professor, uh, something that, for example, would have been kicked out of first-year class in linguistics or something has been the utmost nonsense. Now, that happens a great deal in Scotland, but the other side of it, and it's relating to that earlier question, uh, the more important aspect of that, in a way, is George Davies' work. Uh, sitting here with Peter, who was very, uh, you know, uh, strong, let's say, 
with his work in the Edinburgh Review. Those of you remember the 1980s Edinburgh Reviews uh, when George Davy and the, that whole kind of uh, uh, look at the way the, the way that we looked then at the Scottish tradition, the Scottish common sense tradition, the Scottish tradition in education, the, Sc that, the various aspects of that. It's not to be in some kind of a Scottish nationalist kind of way. It's just a way of dealing as any other culture would do, dealing with their own history and looking how does ours, how does it operate? What is it we do? How do Scottish writers operate? What is it that makes their writing distinct from the, the ordinary English writer? Uh, why? I mean, that would even relate to me coming back to uh, Polygon. I was saying to Neville from Polygon, it seemed to me to be right coming back to Scotland again to have my work being uh, printed here after 20 years. And my, my, my Robin, Robin's here as well from a, 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 my, my first editor in Second Warburg, a Robin. A, and this, this again is, is quite appropriate to me because it's, it's been back to why, why, why would my work and other Scottish writers' work be treated in a certain way in England or not be seen in a certain way? Why is it not seen within the Scottish context? Why is it that someone like David Hume is only seen within an, an English tradition? Why are we not studying these great, great Scottish uh, thinkers? Why, why these questions, why all the time? But why, in other words, uh, is this kind of Anglo domination of Scottish culture? Why the hell do people not start to actually look at our own traditions, our own culture? So I'm feeling that quite strongly just now. Uh, coming back from Sky last week with Marie, my wife, uh, I bought uh, Solly McLean's brother, Callum McLean's book published by Mainstream, which is just called The Highlands. I don't know if anybody's read it. I didn't even know it was available in paperback. It's really great to see that. So I'm reading that again and reading uh, Andrew Walker's book in the, the Scottish, uh, that Peter will know well, uh, Common Sense Edition. And it's just this always feeling that... Uh, why the hell are we not allowed to study and look at our own culture? Why is it nobody knows these things? Why is it that no one knows about the great radical history in Scottish politics? Why do people talk about Parliament, you know, in that sense, or assume that that's the only way to go? All that indicates is that no one knows the history even of the CP in, in Scotland up to, say, 1925, or the, the time when Arthur McManus was, uh, uh, well, died, uh, you know, the first chairman of the CP. Why do people not know that? You know, uh, this great rally, why do people not know about uh, these great figures or somehow, or why do they not know about the battle between uh, John McLean's, uh, 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 the, the education, the college, the workers' college, and what was going on with the WEA? You know, these are really crucial. Why do they not know uh, these reasons for the disruption? Why do they not know about the history of the Scottish university system? Why don't they fucking know these things? You know, why are we forced about fucking kings and queens? Oh, Robert the Bruce jumped to a hedge. Oh, well, that's great, you know. <laughs> uh, why do we not know about the fucking martyrs? You know, why do we not know about the guys being executed? Why do we not know about Castlereagh and Sidmouth's conspiracies against United Irishmen, United Scotsmen? Why do we not know these damn things? Thank you. <laughs> was sweeping over here because it's easy to forget. Uh, well, I'm going to say, yeah, thanks, Angus. That's exactly right. In a, in a moment. Okay. <coughs> um, 
sorry, thanks. When you did your, your interview in the Edinburgh Review, back when all the, the controversy over the language when you won the Booker Prize, um, you said that you very vehemently denounced people that represent um, dialect speakers using phonetic spellings and apostrophes, etc. Um, and I would like to know how you reconcile that with the fact that you've, well, you've always associated yourself with, with Tom Leonard, for one, and you said earlier that you were, had yourself experimented with stories that represented language in that way. So I'd like to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, the first story uh, that I worked on that in a thorough way was in An Open Near the Angel, Nice to Be Nice. And the next, which caused bother when it, uh, when it was uh, printed, well, the next time again was uh, with uh, how late it was, the, the Booker Prize one. No, the argument I was making, it was, it was really to do with uh, a kind of slipshod way of using a, a, a so-called phonetic transcription, which was always there to indicate how working class people spoke. And the only time it would appear in that, kind of, that class of literature was in dialogue. So you would the narrative always occurred in a standard English literary voice, a kind of RP type of voice. Standard English literary forum, which is the so-called God voice of English literature. So this kind of narrative, straight narrative, would uh, kind of say or describe what was going on. And maybe it would, it would indicate that uh, here comes James about to talk to Peter. And it would be uh, said, James, how's it going there, Peter? And that would be written in this uh, phonetic transcription. <laughs> and poor old fucking Peter here, you know. <laughs> Peter coming from London would go, oh, hiya, James. <laughs> uh, hello, James. <laughs> but, and you would have all the apostrophes for missing letters, apparently. Yeah. Apparently it missing letters. <laughs> in your <laughs> it was that. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't, didn't you, wasn't there a story of, that you sent to Collins short stories and they sent it back, they were printing it, and they sent it back um, the other way around, putting lots of apostrophes in. Yeah. And lots of, because you... <laughs> You had written it, yeah. you know, in an in a, uh, integrated way. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, what I wanted to try and do, to go back to that, it was a way in which, when I first wrote Nice to be Nice, I felt, see, being one of the people who are always put into di dialogue, and are, it usually has their language corrupted and uh, uh, apostrophized, etc., etc., uh, it makes you kind of look at, well, why is this happening? Why is the narrative, why is God never speaking this Glasgow voice as, like, as maybe one of Tom's poems, you know? Why, why does he always talk as if he's from Hampstead Teeth? And uh, like the poor old like picks, you know, we've always in fucking uh, quotation marks or something like that. Well, why can't we kind of uh, move in another way? So when I wrote Nice Be Nice, I thought, well, fuck it. What I'm going to do here is... It'll be a straight third-party narrative here, written in a Glasgow speaking voice. And all the dialogue will appear in standard English literary forum, you know. <laughs> so it'll be like, Jimmy walked down the road and he said, How's it going, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> but that, that kind of became too... <laughs> that was almost like uh, where uh, the joke becomes... I mean, I'm, first and foremost, uh, I'm interested in a pro the doing the story right. So the way to do the story, right, that kind of stuff came out. But it does make you focus. You, the thing again is like, when, when you receive all this criticism or hostility, it makes you focus on why you're doing it. What is it about this story or this use of language that upsets people so much? Why, why are they so angry about it? What, 
you know, like, I mean, they weren't as angry about this when uh, somebody like Falconer was writing, uh, some uh, other people are, I mean, did this happen to Emily Bronte when she, she did that particular section in, uh, what is that, uh, Wuthering Heights? Uh, there's, a, there's a certain, there's a section that, anyway, did this sort of hostility happen to them? Or is it simply because this is an actual Glasgow working, supposedly Glasgow working class speaking voice? Is this the thing that is so aggravating and hostile to them? But these sorts of questions make you focus really tightly on language. Once I had finished uh, working Nice to be Nice, for example, I realized that the, uh, the phonetic, you see, as, I, as Tom Leonard wrote in one poem, we say doing one minute and down the next, and we have all these different ways of saying the same word. It depends on what the phrasing is or the syntax or rhythms. It depends what word is or what vowel has been used maybe five uh, sentences previously. Once you look at language in this way, it's not enough to do a phonetic transcription. You start to get more interested in syntax. I give, an obvious example would be a kind of Glasgow or West Central Scottish putting but at the end of the sentence. You can't do that, but. Now, you can write that down without just having but at the end of the sentence. And you realize that you can't put but at the beginning of the sentence. It's a different emphasis. The but at the end of the sentence is a different emphasis from putting but at the beginning of a sentence. That's one obvious example. But what you see, there are these different... You just become more interested in the phrasing and the rhythm. That's what became interesting to me more. So the story after Nice to be Nice is quite a complicated story to do with uh, syntax or the rhythms. But if you read it off the page, I would hope it would come out, although it's written in standard English uh, spelling. Certainly the phrasing is different, the syntax is different, or the grammar. What I've come to realize in later work is the grammar itself is not just syntax. In a novel like mine, for example, translated accounts, it's realizing, again, it's a position that Chomsky and linguists would, uh, it's to do with there are different grammars. The grammar of a child is different from the grammar of an adult. They, have, they, they will get to it and they will say and express what it is they mean, but it can be a very elongated way of doing it. You know, there are many, many different grammars, you know, the uh, indefinite number of grammars, etc. So it's that way that kind of led to me moving out of using a kind of phonetic transcription often. But gradually I came back to it, I felt I needed it. It was a, it was a case of necessity. Yeah, I was supposed to go on from that, Jim. I was uh, in the bookstore <coughs> just before I came over for your lecture and uh, picked up Mr. Evan Welsh's latest. Uh, and in it, there's a character in California who calls Scotland Scatland, S-K-A-T. And I thought, I wonder where I'd read that before. And of course, it's in your being careful in the land of the free. So clearly, you've influenced Mr. Evan Welsh. So that's uh, something for you. So in a way, I want to go on to that to talk about the, the question of how to write in language. Friend of this year. <laughs> in fact, that uh, yeah, Crassett Gibbon says America, spells America the way I do in that novel. I didn't yeah. realize oh, it. Right. Oh, that's yeah. good. So there you are. I never <laughs> took it off of Crassett Gibbon. I didn't even realize it until recently. But in a way, it, what you've been talking about, of course, is important, both in terms of culture, language, and economics, in a way, because um, I don't know how many you sold of your Booker Prize winner in England. But I suspect not as many as maybe the normal Booker Prize winner would sell down there. Scotland, I'm sure, it did well enough. Um, but the problem, of course, is making a living as a novelist in Scotland, as you have remarked on recently in an interview, is actually very difficult if you only sell in Scotland. So I guess that's why. 
And so be really controversial and talk about your views on Mr. Evan Welsh and then your views on Willie McIlvaney, say, who writes actually in well-crafted English but within a Scots context. And in fact, his latest book is about um, being a creative writer, if I remember rightly. Well, one of the things about Evan uh, uh, Welsh is simply that you, you, and Evan's work with you're, not, you're never in control. As a writer, you're not in control. I was not in control of the Booker Prize. I would have assumed when I won the Booker Prize that my work would sell. I was not. I can't go around to bookshops and make sure people buy the damn thing. Uh, and the same if, if it is sold, as Evan Welsh's work was sold. There's nothing you can do about that. It would be a real grave error you know, if, uh, for writers to uh, confuse I mean, a lot of people do confuse it and think that the writer is also involved in that kind of publicity machine and that somehow that, yeah, he's responsible for uh, selling so many books. You know, th th there was a lot of different reasons for that, to do with a movie. But even before Trainspotting as a movie was done, the no uh, Trainspotting was selling. You know, at that time, uh, Duncan McLean, I don't know whether Duncan's here, but uh, Duncan was involved in doing things that we had been involved doing in the 70s. Duncan who had one of the students around when Peter was with the Polygon Edinburgh University Students Board. And Duncan was involved in uh, the Clock Tower Press and various other uh, enterprises like that. So uh, there was a, that generosity. In other words, there was a kind of generosity and solidarity around in Edinburgh at that period. As the, well, that's spread beyond Edinburgh too, as it had been in Glasgow 10 years earlier, as has been before in Scotland with other writers where they've known and tried to not keep things from each other, but try and kind of uh, help, help others along. I don't think there's uh, any writers really who grudge other writers, you know, taking it seriously. You know, that, in that sense, I don't think writers really grudge other writers because you're, you're aware of that. Uh, you really, the other, there are, you know, the, you're, you're not in control of market forces. You can't really afford to be. You know, it's like the opposite of what would happen to myself or others where where your work is really attacked, you can't, you know, it doesn't mean you go out and change it. You can't really do that, you know. We've got about five minutes to go, so now's the time to uh, really focus and think of that question that you'd like to ask that you might be thinking about on your way back down the road. So there's two, man in the green T-shirt had his hand up and then you, so. <coughs> And these will have to be the last two questions. Okay. Do you play poker? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like to play. I don't play well, but I like to play poker. I've been playing it since I was. My daughters, my daughters can beat me. Where the hell are I? I can't see out in front of my family. They are. Actually, my daughter read me once, much to my horror, about five or six. Dad, you always do this when you're bluffing. <laughs> Whatever Laura's sitting, I don't know, but I remember she was... Yeah, but I like to play poker. <laughs> I wonder if I could ask you maybe to talk about two things which I think should come t together. Your part, what you actually did when you did take a, a writing class, a creative writing class, I think in the, in the States, if that's... Correct. And the second thing is, 
whether the atmosphere in the States was liberating, since obviously a lot of the expectations and attitudes would be much different from here. It was liberating in both. I taught in the University of Texas and also in the San Jose State University. It was liberating there for myself in the uh, because there was no the, uh, there was no pressure to become an academic. Part of the problem, I think, here in the UK, and, it's, uh, I'll, and I'll say the UK because it takes in it doesn't allow Scotland to stand alone in that sense. Is that it, the writer, in a sense, has almost been forced to be the artist. It's better to say artist, right? Because that keeps us focused on what it is and the, the distinction, maybe. The artist is forced to become an academic. You're forced to take on these different things. I mean, it can even be something as mundane as waiting four hours to get six quid for the, uh, the travel fees for a writer that you brought from fucking Paris. So you always, well, wait a minute, why am I queuing up for four hours at the finance office and all these? So you're always like, say, here's a six quid for Christ's sake. You know, you do, you've got to do this and you think, well, I want to be involved. I mean, I want to be actually reading students' work, talking to students or else doing my own work. Why the hell have I got to do this? But, so you have that sense in which uh, academics themselves have become, become quite... Uh, Hostile tells you because maybe they don't see why you should be allowed to have that freedom where they don't. Why should the artist not have to do all that kind of administrative stuff? Why should they be allowed to focus on teaching? Because academics, the better the academic, the less likely they are to be able to teach. I mean, the Scottish tradition in education is, not, is nothing if it's not to do with teaching. So when you have, we have a central figure like 18th century, one of the, the great uh, outstanding figures in enlightenment and teacher is Francis Hutchison. But when we look at if, what, why was Francis Hutchison so great, why are we talking about him three, 300 years later? It's not to do with things that he wrote. It was just it was this tremendous teaching he did. So the people like Hume and Adam Smith and the great figures around uh, Ferguson people, this is, this is uh, what was so important, the great kind of uh, classic teaching. But that was what was so important, so important. But now that sort of thing's gone. That doesn't, I mean, now it's not economic. The good, the good teachers are now, they, they become administrators. Send out, uh, young, youngsters can go and teach the students, you know. That sort of, so that, that side of it is, is, isn't good. And the, there is a sort of lowbrow thing here. You know, the artist, I felt, uh, as far as the teaching goes, I did a graduate, the graduate class was a difficult graduate class uh, in both places in California and Texas. In Texas I gave them, and this was for the creative writing, I gave them Van Gogh's letters. I gave them, uh, without telling them, I gave them uh, the first med Descartes' first meditation, which I uh, regarded as so influential in writers, and it's not often looked at as how important it is for writers, but it's so crucial, you know, just the way uh, uh, early meditation of Descartes, and, been so crucial in the existential, apart from the you know, obvious ways now, but as writers, just to try and get writers into it, Van Gogh's letters, uh, Van Gogh's letters to Theo, uh, where he touches on literature, and also because, Van, to me, Van Gogh's a great kind of character in the sense that he, he allows you to become a serious artist at the age of 28, 29. You don't have to become 22 and get jittery because you've not published a novel. 
you know, at that stage, uh, when you read Van Gogh's letters, you realise how great a literary critic he is. And in fact, you, you'd be excused for thinking maybe Van Gogh will become a writer, but in fact, he becomes a painter. So, and uh, 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 Marguerite uh, Duras as well. He, uh, I, I gave some of her short work. I gave uh, some late stuff of Gertrude Stein, which is really, really difficult, but it's very exciting and shows a different way of looking at what's possible in literature. It's not, uh, uh, this is kind of uh, Gertrude Stein's work. It, you, you, in a sense, you have to read it aloud. You look at this stuff on the page and it's really very difficult. But once you start to read this thing aloud, it's like a piece of a kind of a abstract art, really. It's like a piece of abstract painting. If you look in a proper way, this thing just kind of shimmies off the page. And Gertrude Stein's work is like that. If you have somebody reading it properly, it kind of makes sense of why uh, Mar Marguerite Duras says about dr her drama. What is she? She just wants the actors to fucking stand at the mic and say her words. Don't do any damn thing. Stand there. I mean, it's as bad as if. If I do a reading, uh, say, in radio and they play music, you go, fuck off, man. <laughs> if I wanted music, I would write the fucking thing. This is leave my rhythms to be there. That's what it's about, you know. And so to give, it's in fact, it brings students of uh, literature or people who want to be writers to see that they're involved in art and to give them a different kind of perception. It doesn't mean go away and read. You've got to, oh, you've got to read Burns and McDermott and you've got to read... Alistair Gray and Kelman, Liz Lockhead, because you're going to be a writer in Scotland. It's not to do with that. You know, have an appreciation of what art is, what it can be, and it's a different kind of value system. So that, you're free to do that. In a sense, the American, American, not everywhere, because a lot of American universities are teaching creative writing as badly as they're doing it here. And that's part of the struggle that's going on there too. But there is still room for the actual artists to be on campus and they don't force them into being an academic. Okay, well, we need to finish there. I'd like to, uh, for you to join me in offering a really big thanks to James Kelman for being here this afternoon. <laughs> Might be an idea to start walking, maybe start walking to the thing, okay. it's quite easy to get.